Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Police found 27 corpses. Australia's worst serial killer. Even though I didn't want to get in the car, I actually... With Amanda Howland and Robert McKnight. Hello there and welcome to Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. She's a criminologist. She's a true crime author. A best-selling true crime author, actually. And we know her as the serial killer whisperer, Amanda Howard. Hello there. Hello, Robert. How are you going? Oh, look, I'm fine and dandy on this Monsters Who Murder day as we look at Arthur Shawcross Part 2. We had so much material with this guy, Amanda, and there's a lot more to come today. There is so much more to come, but I've got something I have to announce to people. Oh. It seems to be that Judge Rob is not only on Monsters Who Murder anymore. <laughs> That's certainly true. I saw that little comment from you. Judge Rob has <laughs> gone over to the tvblackbox.com.au website where he's passing his judgments now on issues within the television industry. You missed the first one. This week I did oh, another I did. one on the case of the ABC versus Craig McLaughlin and Seven Spotlight and passed my judgment on some of the techniques used by the interviewers, which were... Let's just say not quite ethical. But anyway, yes, Judge Rob is popping up everywhere. I love a good brand, Amanda, no matter where, yeah, I, where I, it comes from. I love from. it too. <laughs> and reading what you wrote, it's like, oh, my goodness, he's been listening. He knows how to do this now, talking about body language and forced <laughs> questions and all of this sort of stuff. I was very, very proud of you. <laughs> I thought you might like at the end when I said, all rise for Judge Rob's verdict. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. So uh, I, got, I got that fun to share it with everyone. It was just, it was too good not to share. I, I love it. Good on you. And, of course, as we bring you this audio podcast, we also bring you the video podcast where you can see Amanda and I in all my glory. Uh, in all our glory. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be one of those episodes I can see now. <laughs> uh, well, yes. Um, the viewers have us, so maybe one day we will do it in all our glory. Um, uh, but you can go to mwm.uscreen.com I.O. That's what it is. <laughs> I always get caught on that I.O. part. It's mwm.uscreen.io. So just go there and you can take out a monthly subscription. You can either buy per episode for $5 or you can get a 25% discount by taking out the monthly subscription. That's the one I would suggest. Or if you're on Patreon and upgrade to the $25 tier, you get the video podcast included in your Patreon subscription. Oh, we can't do any better than that, Amanda. No, I think it's great. And um, so many people are loving watching us do this. Mm. Some people said my voice doesn't match my person. And I said, yeah, I do sound a lot skinnier than I am. And I totally get that. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, but it's just great that so many people are now seeing what I'm seeing and they're being able to watch other docos, not just the ones that we do, just to sort of sort of expand their their, their skill set. I think you know I'm going to be able to take holiday soon, and someone else can take over. They're doing so well uh, watching these videos with us. Oh, uh, sure, but I don't know about that. But um, what I love is you get two horror shows for the price of one. You get to meet these killers, <laughs> and then you get to see my face on the video. So that's uh, a double helping of true crime horror. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you were meant to say, no, it's not wrong, you sexy. No, anyway. All right, plenty to come up on this edition of Monsters Who Murder, but as always, we begin with our news section. And it's been revealed justice comes with a hefty price, with budget papers revealing it will cost New Zealand taxpayers $6.6 million over the next four years to imprison the Christchurch shooter. Here's what Corrections Minister Kevin Davis had to say about the cost when asked during a press conference. Well, uh, I think it's necessary. He, you know, he's probably our worst, uh, most notorious offender and we need to make sure that not only is he kept safe but also other prisoners are kept safe as well as um, the corrections officers who are doing a great job of making sure that he, he is safe. It's just the really um, the, the cost that it is for him. Big your Oh, look, of course, everything about the, the man makes me uncomfortable, uh, including the cost that it takes to, um, to house him. OK, Amanda, this is a huge cost. Where does all that money go? Well, I mean, it's about the running costs. So it's not about, you know, some guard standing outside his his room. It's about the kitchen needs to make sure that they have the, the proper things to go to his his cell. Um, it's about 24-7 supervision. Now, it's not – it's it's currently going just for him because he's the only person in this new Supermax unit that they have. But eventually, sadly, they will actually have more uh, prisoners in that section. So it, that cost will go down. But currently – there's one patient in this super unit that that's all it's, it's going to. But, you know, but there's also the therapies. There's also, you know, lighting. Uh, someone has to come and sweep the floors. It, it, it pays for a lot of different people doing a lot of different jobs. But we have to remember that um, these costs, we want to see this man kept in jail forever. It, we, we don't want to negate uh, the, the deaths that have occurred and saying that this is too much to, to keep this man in prison. I mean, there's talk about him coming back over to Australia, but really, like um, some of the family members, said, you know, he did the crimes here in New mm. Zealand, he should pay the price in New Zealand. And I totally agree with that. Um, if forever in 50 years' time we're still talking about this, and I think I've got enough seasons to get us there, um, it, it's going to be a, a moment in time that they're going to have to say yes or no, he can get out or not. We have um, the truth and sentencing laws, uh, New Zealand's trying to do the same thing, but um, it's about keeping them housed and keeping them safe because they do want them to, to spend their whole life in prison they don't want them to um take their own lives next week and so it is a huge cost but this is what it costs to keep a prisoner it's the same in a hospital with keeping someone in in a hospital bed's about the same much per day but it's about uh the unit and people are just throwing figures around because there's only one guy in it currently i mean they yeah, do well, the same all that when, money uh, is Port going Arthur to occurred. him 
It is. Well, it's about uh, it's it's about staffing a unit, and mm. a, a unit needs cleaners, needs someone to em- empty the bin, check the sinks, electricity bills, and all all of that. It's currently going to focus on housing him, but it won't remain that way, unfortunately. But you know, we we can't negate what else is going on because of that price. I mean, the the uh, trial alone would have been more than that had he not pled guilty. So I mean, sure. there's that part of it as well. It just seems such an inflated price and everything involving government seems inflated. You know, you could run a household for four, $6.6 million. Everyone watching this podcast could say, I could live a very comfortable life on $6.6 million for the next four years. And they're actually doing the opposite. For $6.6 million, it's not a comfortable life. Mm. So, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, it's 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 something that is unavoidable and that's why the prisons do have a federal budget and all of that sort of stuff mm. because they do need to house these people and um, if there's others that, that, that come through New Zealand, God forbid, um, you know, they will be housed there as well. Just makes you think maybe the death penalty has its advantages. All right, let's move on. Because the potential parole of an Australian serial killer is becoming a political issue, despite the fact he won't be eligible for parole until 2023. Family and friends of schoolgirl Natalie Russell, one of Paul Denyer's victims, rallied outside the Victorian State Parliament in a bid to keep the evil serial killer behind bars for life. MP David Limbrick, who was Natalie's boyfriend at the time, is pushing for the government to intervene and ensure the killer remains locked up. More now from Nine News. For the family and friends of Natalie Russell, this is the latest painful step in a journey that started 28 years ago. It's just something you don't get over. It's, it's You learn to get out of bed every morning and put one foot in front of the other, but it, it's there in front of you all the time. In 1993, Frankston and surrounding areas were living in terror. As searchers began the hunt for clues to the third slaying of a woman in nearly two months, Natalie was 17 in her final year at school. She was a vibrant, happy, intelligent, girl and the places she would have gone. Her life savagely cut short by a serial killer who ambushed her on a bike track. No, always wanted to kill For the murders of two schoolgirls and a young mother, Paul Denyer, who later became Paula, was sentenced to die in prison, but on appeal given a 30-year minimum, making parole a possibility within two years, when Denyer will be in her early 50s. MP David Limbrick has started an online petition to prevent that. For the politician, this is personal. She was my girlfriend. What we're asking the government to do is to make sure that Paul Denyer stays locked up forever. Because Denyer's evil legacy lives on. It continues, yeah. There's not a woman in Frankston that doesn't check her back seat before she gets in the car. So, Amanda, before we started recording, you told me that despite what that news report said, Paul Denyer doesn't actually refer to himself as she. No, um, he calls himself Paul. All of his letters I've had from him, uh, talking to him on the phone, it is all Paul. He uses he pronouns and he actually uh, considers himself asexual but uses the male pronouns. So all this stuff about Paula, that was a flash in the pan many years ago. He thought he may have been transgender, but he's since moved on and believes that he's now asexual. So um, they're still running with that because I think it's a great sell, but um, the truth is he is Paul. Okay. The question I have about that then is, 
at what to what extent did he transition? Was it superficial, like hair and things like that, or did he actually start hormone treatment or anything like that? No, he, he didn't do any of that. He grew his hair long for a while and he gets to play with um, arts and crafts and he makes cute hats and things like that, um, which are more along the drag scene, but um, not actually part of a transgender transitioning role. So um, mm. it's, yeah, I think someone spoke to him once and he sort of was um, trying to identify that to see if that's where he fit. Um, but that was, I think that was about 15 years ago now. It's been and a long look, there time. there are certainly photos of it, so, you know... It, it certainly was a no. Thing. There's one photo. I will. There's one photo, and that's the one photo that they all show. I have other photos, um, which is not of Paula Denier. So she doesn't exist. He does. Okay, good to know. And that's why you are the expert here. Um, let's go back to the story. Why are the friends and relatives? protesting for want of a better word it's not actually likely that Paul Daniel will be released why are they panicking well, they're not panicking. It's actually a legal requirement um, because they're actually told he's going to be up for parole. Are you going to um, say that you're against it? So that's what they need to do. They need to actually be vocal. They need to put in more victim impact statements. You know, it's so sad to see her, her friend in that film just then who's grown up and Natalie hasn't. It's That was sort of like that was a bit heart, heart-rendering to me just to see that, you know, that she would be in, in her 40s by yeah. now. So it's – but it's something that – Unfortunately, they have to do every time he comes up for parole. He's been planning this parole and believes that he's actually going to get out. And so he's been doing programs and all that sort of stuff leading up to this, believing that on the day he is eligible that he's actually walking out. He's in total denial of any um, opportunity that it's not going to happen. So um, he has been seeing psychologists. He's on a methadone program, um, which makes fun having phone calls with him he's not quite there um but it's interesting that you know the families have to continue to do this as part mm. of the legal process to be yeah because if if no one's there to um to say that they would like it it rejected it can actually go the opposite way so they need to do this every time it's unfair it's cruel but um you know it, it not that they ever stop grieving, but it does actually make it sort of more um, visualised again. So, um, but yeah, it, it will be interesting to see, but I don't think he's going anywhere. Yeah, of course. But the interesting aspect here is that they're asking for the government to step in and make sure that he can't be released. But that's really not a thing, even though an MP no, you is can't involved. No, yeah, no, you can't do proactive um, sentencing. So if you're sentenced to life and they decide that life isn't 20 years, it's now um, until you're dead, that's okay. But if they've set a sentence of life with a minimum period, they can't change that. So mm. they, like, um, it's like Catherine Burney in Perth. So um, David Burney took his own life, but Catherine Burney believes that she should be allowed out now because he's dead. And no, that's not going to happen. You're in there for as long as they can hold you. Um, but now people believe that the Burneys were actually sentenced to never to be released, but they're actually sentenced never to be released together. So that's a legal uh. loophole that she's using. But Paul, on, on the other hand, he thinks it's okay. He mourns these deaths when they happen that he believes that if he was a different person, he wouldn't have done that. But anyway, um, I think we sort of covered that in, in the episode on him. But, um, yeah, it's just interesting, that two points of call. But, yeah, the family just needs to know that they actually have to be there to focus and target this parole hearing only, and then it's another battle in five years' time. 
You know, it's interesting, Amanda, that seeing the video of that police interview was quite interesting and it almost makes me want to go and redo that case and do it as a video podcast because oh, the clarity is so good. He, the way he's behaving in that police interview is quite interesting and it does add a new layer to what we, what we heard by what we're seeing. Absolutely. You know, I would love to do them all again. Um, that, so that makes it 200 episodes just to start. So that's another 10 seasons. So now we're up to 112 seasons. Right. But yeah. no, absolutely. There are some of these cases that have really good footage that I think would be really great to return to, as well as some coming up that are amazing that um, are going to be good ones as well. So I think we'll have to sort of mix them in with, with the season. Sorry, guys, mm. this has become a production meeting. <laughs> Absolutely. The only way I do it. The only way you can get hold of me is when we're talking on it. Yep. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Because on the 10-year anniversary since Casey Anthony walked free after being accused of the death of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee, a juror now says he regrets the verdict. People magazine has more. On Thursday, the juror told People that his decision to acquit haunts him to this day, explaining that if he could do it all over again, he thinks he'd push hard to convict Anthony on one of the lesser charges, like aggravated manslaughter or at least child abuse. He also recalls how after the trial, the jurors had kept up with each other on a group text for several months, but eventually People stopped responding because it was painful for everyone. He explains that he felt sick every time he saw one of the jurors' names appear on his phone. So he eventually muted the chat and stopped engaging because it was all just too hard. One month after the verdict, the male juror had spoken with people to explain his take on what happened. He said at the time, quote, generally, none of us liked Casey Anthony at all. She seemed like a horrible person. He went on to say that the prosecutors did not give the jury enough evidence to convict Anthony, saying they gave us a lot of stuff that makes us think that she probably did something wrong, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. He revealed to people that the enormity of the acquittal bothered the jury, saying, we sat there for a few minutes and were like, holy crap, we are letting her go free. He revealed that everyone was stunned by their decision and admitted that he wasn't okay with it, but what else was he supposed to do? They promised to follow the law. Now the juror's focus is on Kaylee. He says, quote, every time I see her face or hear her name, I get a pit in my stomach. It all comes flooding back. Wow. Amanda, I'm interested in your thoughts on this one. We have a juror saying he regrets the decision he made. Yeah, I mean, it's really tough, and this is about hindsight. So he has now seen what the rest of us has seen the entire time. But they were in that bubble of the jury room in the court. They could only do what they could on what they're given. As you said, some of them didn't sort of give as much argument as they should have. But the fact that she's a terrible person doesn't send someone to jail. Mm. So, you know, we, we have to take that emotion out of it. And if the evidence didn't suggest that she had killed Kaylee, then that's what they have to um, convict on. He said, oh, we should have gone for the lesser charges and all of that. Well, you would have if you had it in front of you. And they probably thought, yeah, gee, we shouldn't have come to this decision. It's too late, you know. And so they've heard the backlash since. This was massive when she walked out of, of 
the court a, a, mm. a free person. And it is a case that we are going to do in our cold cases because officially it is a cold case. And there is so much to this case that wasn't presented in court. And we're even going to go through the 911 calls because that is where this case explodes. And I don't know if the 911 calls were uh, given in evidence in court, but those alone to me just sort of is so many red flags that they should have pursued some very different um, areas of investigation. So the fact that he's saying now that, you know, this is tough and even seconds after they said it was tough, well, they maybe should have taken more time. Maybe, you know, they weren't the right people for, for this jury. We Although don't know that we said, can't change that. He said we were told to make our decision based on the evidence presented before us. Exactly. He's basically yeah. saying the prosecution didn't do their job. They yeah. didn't give no, they the didn't. jury enough to convict. You can't blame the jury mm -hmm. for that. No, no, absolutely not. And that's what, what I was saying. They're in this bubble of, of the jury. They only can go on what is presented to them. If they didn't present the right case, they can't convict. And this is what happens. You know, you have gloves that don't fit, you know, you and all of this acquit. sort of stuff. And Exactly. So, I mean, it's just, it's just part of this, that hindsight, because they've seen the public backlash, totally get that. But in that courtroom, they knew that that was the decision that they had come to, and they cannot change that. They they have double jeopardy laws, so she cannot go to trial again unless new uh, evidence is found and presented. So I know that people haven't stopped on this case. This case is very active in the true crime circle. So um, someone's trying to find that needle in a haystack to take this uh, case back to court. And you don't know with DNA these days, there might be a little sample somewhere that they're going to reevaluate and it could blow the case differently. So mm. we'll see. Well, Judge Rob looks forward to you presenting your evidence and he <laughs> looks forward to making his verdict. Hey, you might not know because we've never mentioned it, we have a Patreon page. And you can always <laughs> subscribe to Patreon by going to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. It's a place where you can throw us a few dollars each month and get a whole range of bonus materials. For $5, you get the new episodes a week early. For $10, you get bonus episodes, which are coming very soon. More cold cases <laughs> are on the way. And for a mere $20 a month, you get to chat with the serial killer whisperer herself. You get a group chat with Amanda Howard. $25 will get you the video tier, plus all the bonuses you've heard of earlier. And the $50 Patreon tier will get you a one-on-one -on -one chat each month with Amanda and myself. So please go and have a look at what's available and check out the options at patreon.com slash mwmconfessions and of course this is now a video podcast so if you want to see what we look like and what's going on when we profile these killers go to mwm.uscreen.io for as little as five dollars you can get early access to the new episodes and amanda you'll attest to this you can get a 25 percent discount if you take out the 15 dollar monthly tier on uscreen it really is fun and it is a great way to get a new depth of the psychological profiles Amanda brings you. Um, I, I really think it's great, Amanda. I'm loving the video podcasts. 
I am too. I mean, it means that, that I have to remain dressed, which is always a <laughs> There has been episodes that I have confessed that I do have a top on but pyjama bottoms. <laughs> so, Sometimes not even a top. But, you know, it's just <laughs> that's the old days. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and also in all of this is uh, we also have our private Patreon Facebook page for the $10 and up tiers as well mm. where you get to chat to me basically 24-7. I'm on there 24-7. We have a dark sense of humour, but we're in a safe place and we all totally agree. So um, we share memes, we share stories, we, st- we share um, analysis of the previous week's podcast and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of jokes about Rob's accents and there has been a request for a Russian accent. Ah, a Russian accent. <laughs> I've right, been to Sean Connery then. As we go to the break, <laughs> as, as we take a moment... Um, uh, Russian. Uh, I want some vodka. I want to see Arthur Shawcross. Arthur Shawcross. No, I don't know what I'm doing there. How does a direction accent oh, sound? Just, just leave it. It's okay. That is Vlad, you, I, you, I kill you. You, you. you bring me the Genesee River Killer, Arthur Shawcross, right after we take this short break. We'll be right back. Oi. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Monsters Who Murder. Serial killer confessions. Police found 27 corpses. Australia's worst serial killer. Even though I didn't want to get in the car, I had to... With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Now to part two on our psychological profile on the Genesee River killer, Arthur Shawcross. Shawcross was a child killer, a serial killer, a rapist and a cannibal who first killed a boy and a girl in 1974. He pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of two counts of first-degree manslaughter for the killings and was sentenced to 25 years. 14 years later, Shawcross was released and a year later began to kill again. Between March 1988 and December 1989, Shawcross murdered at least 12 young women before a witness saw him at the scene of the last victim and he was reported to police. Amanda, from what we've seen so far of Shawcross, he is a very confident man who seems very open talking about his killings, but there are some aspects of his crimes he simply won't go into. Yeah, I mean, in in the last episode, we started off with him very cold. He sort of didn't want to talk, and it was sort of like one-word answers. And then slowly, as the interview has continued, he's opened up, mm. but he won't talk about the child victim. So it just shows you that it, he has a moral compass, um, but it's slightly broken. But, yeah, he just said, I don't <laughs> want to talk about Watertown because Watertown was where the two children were murdered. Mm. So, um, yeah, so he is very open, but he was always like this. Um, I learned a lot from him as my first serial killer I got in contact with. So Mm, it's interesting to come back and revisit this uh, because he died 
probably about a decade ago now, I think. And so um, it's just interesting to revisit him and know the art I know compared to the serial killer that we're seeing on, on these programs now. But I think it's just interesting how he does twist and turn and just makes things uh, suit his narrative. And as we saw in the last episode, he actually contradicts himself compared mm. on, on one doco to the other. Yeah, that's right. Now, look, let's continue with those interviews from a variety of sources, and we're going to hear something rarely asked of a serial killer. Why did you confess to it? Why? I just got tired of it after 14, 16 hours later. Tired of what? All the... what was coming at me. I just couldn't handle it. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, he is looking over his shoulder all the time. He says he was tired. Yeah, I mean, there's no remorse there. He just did no. that for his own comfort. Mm. So, you know, he's saying that the police were coming at him with all of these questions and after 15, 16 hours of it, he decided he was tired. It's not because I wanted to, um, you know, let these families have closure. It's not about, you know, because I did bad things and I, I deserve to be punished. It's I was tired, you know. It's just so sort of... Um centralized on on his feelings and um as as we said last episode as well they expected him to lawyer up they did not expect to get a confession out of him and this is you know i keep going back to this point ask for a lawyer um because literally they had nothing on him so the fact that they wore him down now we've done videos where they go for 10 15 20 30 hours and we say you know we can't believe that the police did that. And this is why, because some mm. killers do give up because they do get um, physically and emotionally exhausted. And so they just think it's easier just to say it, just to get out of here, regardless of the repercussions. No, the thing that gets me is when we've watched some of these police tapes and they're, it's like it feels like they're on the verge of a confession. They go, right, let's take a break. And you're like, oh, yeah. you've just lost all momentum. The idea mm -hmm. of going for 30 hours and wearing him down, I get that he was just like, I just want this to be over. And you know what? What am I fighting for? You know, like, I, I understand yeah. why he would confess. I don't understand why some of these police interviewers we've seen give up. You know, like, it's like oh, let's take a break. Let's give you some food. Let's, you know, like, uh, good on the police here, I say. Look, with a confession, as you said, he needed to now get out of it because he's confessed, but he needs to get out of it. So he turns to the story that he was abused as a child. And this is what happened when he was hypnotised and started talking about it. What are you doing now? What's happening? What, what are you doing now? Alright, why are you holding your penis? Alright, what's happening? Mom. What's happening? What is mommy doing? Mom's got me. Mom's got you now? What is she doing? Playing. Okay, and what's happening? What did your mother do? My mother gave me oral sex. She performed oral sex on me for several years. Mm -hmm. 
when I was 14 years old, I did intercourse, and I ran away. I put a sign, uh, note on my pillow in my bedroom. I'm going to Syracuse, and I turned around and went to Canada. I just didn't want to go home. Because you were being abused? Yes, sir, I was. You don't believe him, do you? No, it's total bullshit. It is total bullshit. This is what comes up when they realise that they're between a rock and a hard place and they need to get out of it. So there is all these different things that they go down, sexual abuse as a child, they've found God, it was uh, the man sitting on his shoulder, it was 12 other people, it was the 12 other people inside of me, all of that sort of stuff. And they bring up these stories. He is a violent sexual predator and was from a very young age. Is this due to abuse? There's no evidence to suggest that ever happened uh that hip, hypnotism that just happened um no no it just doesn't so if he was he hypnotized why is it not believable that he was telling the truth because there wouldn't be any evidence would there i mean i'm not saying this did happen i'm just asking the question because um you know after the trial after he's in jail he's still running this narrative that he was abused uh, he was telling it to the TV programs and everything, but when you talk to him on a person-to-person basis, none of that was true. I can't be hip- hypnotised. I can't have this happen to mm. me. I was in charge here. I knew what I was doing. And he does this. I mean, he, even his stories about Vietnam and seeing action and all of this, he goes on these on these tangents of these flights of fancy. And, and that was a very easy, basic one to act out, believing that he's under sort of some sort of trance, which he was. And he claims later in in, in correspondence with me that that didn't happen. It was just a load of legal jargon, basically. It was just about. Sure, sure. I totally understand that he would use it. I I totally understand that he would use uh, techniques like that to get out of, you know, the severity of a punishment. But I'm just surprised he continued that. It's interesting that he admitted to you that was all BS. Did he admit the abuse was BS? Yeah, yeah, he, he had these wonderful ideas because I often ask them about their family dynamics and I ask them about family holidays because I think when you hear about someone's family holidays or lack thereof in, in some cases, it sort of gives you a bit of a background of their family life and how mm. they grow up. And his was pretty, pretty average. So, I mean, they, they, they did go on family trips and things like that, nothing spectacular, but it was just enough that you, you could get a sense that the family unit wasn't as fractured as, he, as he's trying to make out it is now. So it's an interesting thing then, and we're going to get on to more of this, but when you look back at that clip, what game is he playing with a psychologist or psychiatrist there where he's holding his hand up, pretending to relive this abuse and playing with himself? What What's he trying well, to do? Well, I mean, he... Well, he is sexually aggressive. Even in his letters, let alone phone calls and things like that, he was sexually aggressive. So he has a female doctor in the room with him and he's going to play with himself and that's what's going to happen. And he also knows that she's going to write down that he was abused as a child, present that as a professional's opinion in court Mm -hmm. because you can't prove either way, but she's saying, I was there and this is what we did. This is why it is taped. It's not just hearsay. And that's then a tick on his side saying, oh, he's a poor abused 
boy. But for every uh, abused person that you show me, I'll show you two that were abused and didn't become serial killers. I mean, we have oh, to sure. remember that as well. This mm. is not a reason for it, but it's just part he had his his fantasy life was more than any other killer I've, I've spoken to. He went into all these tangents, including the recipe, including parts of my body. You know, this is what he did. This is a guy who ate three vaginas to speed up uh, being uh, killed by AIDS. I mean... Mm. It's 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 fascinating. Look, let's see what happens when they do call bullshit on the abuse. Your mum has obviously denied that anything like that happened. Everyone would. Can you picture what would happen to a person if she admitted she did shit like that to me? I mean, they say, they've said, you know, ask Arthur Shawcross, say, well, there was no sexual abuse when you were younger. How do they know? I know, because I, I was there. I know what I had to go through. Well, they say they checked all the medical records. I didn't have medical records when my mother was abusing me. You think my mother took me to a doctor because she was giving me oral sex? That's bullshit. <laughs> I've heard you say that's bullshit like that before. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder where I got her from. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he is a master manipulator, so he does this sort of thing. And as you can see, that there was anger there. Now, some people will watch that footage just there and say, but he's smiling. We can't take that as a smile because of his stroke, so he has neurological damage, so mm. we can't go with those... Um, those um, the normal body cues. tics that we would normally do. Yeah. So mm -hmm. when we watch the other recordings that were earlier than than this more comprehensive one, we will see that he does have uh, better responses. But yeah, this is just him ma just manipulating the story. Of course, he, he's going to have a comeback if someone says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm calling bullshit on that," and his response is, "Well, that's bullshit." So that's how it goes. Mm. Um, it's the person with the biggest bullshit, basically. And <laughs> he has no issue with someone coming at him. And I did a few times because I like to not trigger them. I like to um, test them and I like to sort of push those boundaries. And he was one that could, could turn on me quite quickly. And then the, the next letter I, I would get, it's more about he wants to be my grandfather. So, I mean, he's one of those that uh, you know your boundaries very quickly and that interviewer would have known just then that that was a boundary. But he's manipulating all of this. And so it was good that the guy actually did actually challenge him on that So mm. and to have that evidence there to, to do it because it just proves that he'd done his, his preparation he knew where to go. Yeah, sure. Look, earlier you mentioned Vietnam, and here we have another of Shawcross's stories. A lot of things happened in Vietnam. Yeah, I went to Vietnam as a weapons specialist, and I had my own bunker and just outside of Kantum, Vietnam, Central Highlands. And I see a, a woman in her 30s coming down this hill carrying two AKs on this side and two AKs on this side barrel down. So I reach over my shoulder like this, right behind my neck, and I pull out a brand new machete. When she backed out, I come up behind her and took her head right there. I took a couple of hits, but the head came off. She body dropped to the ground, she just bled out. More just fantasy stuff? It is, and this is a story that he loves to tell. He was he was like in, in, in the first aid tent. He wasn't in active duty. <laughs> so like 
these stories um, and you can actually go further into the stories. I don't know how PG we want to keep this, but he talked about, you know, putting hoses up women's parts and turning on hoses. I don't know how you have a hose in in the middle of the Vietnam jungle, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> and, that, you know, he, he would behead them and all of this. And he basically said, and I think he, he might be saying that in a clip coming up, that um, you, you get sent to war and taught to kill. When you come home, you're not taught to stop. And so this was his reasoning to go on this um, tangent of, of murdering people purely because he learned how to do that in Vietnam, being a first aid officer. It, look, it's an interesting concept, of course, but of course, yeah, yeah. a lot of other people have been to war and they did stop when they came yeah. home. And he seems to have a lot of things to blame for his desire to kill. It's his mum abused him. It's the Vietnam War. But look, he, of course, yeah. he has to go further. Have a look at this. Opened up a pouch and I had some C4 plastic explosives, lit a cigarette, just touched it and it started lit up like a miniature sun. Mm. And I just laid the flesh up on top of that stick, right? And I bit into the into the flesh itself, you know, just staring at her eyes and she urinated and defecated on herself. And she talked to me in broken English, so she told me everything I wanted to know. Mm. I go in, I reported in, saluted the colonel, and he gets up and he says, you one sick son of a bitch, but I love you. <laughs> wow. <You> get it? <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. So where's his purple heart for this? So he basically <laughs> won the war for them, even though they lost it. So, um, yeah, yeah. so he went and found the colonel in the next tent because that's where the colonel is, of course, in, in the middle of uh, the Viet <laughs> Vietnamese, Vietnamese jungle. Um, you know, but, yeah, so th this just proves where he goes. And the expressions just there were exactly the same as he had when he was talking about his mother abusing him. So this is how we can look at the um, moments that we can see Yoshi through his voice. That, that, than rather his facial cues. We can see that he just likes to tell these stories. He has these flights of fancy and he loves that people listen to them. So he would, this is gross, but he would have been a great grandfather to go and hear these war stories about, except he didn't see active duty. So mm. these are his own fantasies that God forbid that he did see someone and do this too. But um, yeah, that's a load of bullshit. But wait, there's more. If you thought those stories were big, bold lies, here's more. But I can't remember nobody's name in Vietnam, and that messes me up. War often forms very close relationships. You didn't form friendships with anyone out there? No. You don't remember anyone's name? No. How long were you there for? 13 months. What was your official position in Vietnam? I was a specialist, weapons specialist. I feel like I need a cigarette, Amanda. I've been screwed over so much by this guy. <laughs> yeah, so he's a special weapons specialist. I'm, I think the army can come up with a better name than that. But um, yeah, so he is a compulsive liar. Most serial killers are, but most of them in these sorts of interviews don't go this far. So, um, yeah, so he is a war hero. He is a compulsive liar and serial killer who like to eat dead vaginas. So, I mean... <laughs> 
Uh, you didn't see this one coming, did you? Uh, look, and, and I've got to tell you, being a video cast, I can actually do visual humour now. So yes, you can. You can. That w- I liked that one. I didn't know where you were going. I thought, do you realise we're coming back from the clip? But it was well set up. I appreciated the, that, that change of frame. It was lovely. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm here all week. Uh, All right. Look, he tells another story in another documentary. Boy, he loves telling tales of war. And it's important to listen to these stories because it gives us a background into the kind of man he was and the bullshit that comes out of his mouth. And it's always important to understand, and Amanda has taught me this many, many times, that you can never believe what a serial killer tells you. Some missions in Vietnam, they tell you to go out and you know, seek and destroy. You destroy everything that's in that general area. Everything that's alive. It could be man, woman, child, pigs, chickens, everything. I got to liking going out and killing. We had one patrol, we went out, and that was between Polycline and Clontoon, where near the Kantung River. We came across two females waist deep in the water. They looked like they were taking a bath. One of the GIs, one of the point men, walked out into the water like he was gonna have some fun. One of the girls reached down below the waterline. She had a knife that was, had one wiggle blades on it and just sliced the guy from his groin to his throat. Me and another man, I had a machine gun, M60. Another guy had an M16, and I stitched the girl right across her thighs and up through here. He really loves these brutal tales, doesn't he, Amanda? It's fanciful. You know, like, you can see the excitement, the fantasy coming out. I I mean, it's a bit like the psychologist. To be honest, I'm surprised he doesn't have his penis in his hand with this guy as well while he's telling these stories. Well, it's interesting. I'm surprised he can reach his penis. If you look at his arms, he has really, really short arms, and it's something that it, it, it keeps catching me up on. But, yeah, like, I mean, he is staring at this interviewer. Just let it go. He's staring at, the, at this inter- interviewer quite closely because mm. he wants to know if he's being believed or not because, you know, it's just they love to tell these stories and you know the guards would listen to them and all of that but now he's got someone who's going to judge him because this is going out to the world to see so i mean he just he just sort of wants to sort of keep going you know and so he shot out her thighs then shot up here i mean just crazy and she had this blade and you know this guy had this thing but he can't remember a single person's name who saw he saw with active duty so it's amazing that he can tell you what sort of blade the soldier had but can't tell you anyone's name he can't even make up a name let me ask you a question if you were sitting opposite him and he was telling you these stories how would you handle it as an interviewer would you call bullshit or would you let him keep spinning you the line well i mean you can't call bullshit because the interview's over 
Mm. You know, you you have to sort of press for details like the other in, interviewer did. Well, who were you um, in war with? You know, yeah, if we can correlate good. one of these stories. Yeah, mm. I mean, that worked out well. But, you know, you, you have to let them have these flights of fancy, but you then have to reel them back in. So it's like, okay, so, so why are you telling me this story? What has this got to do with what you did now? So that's not something that someone asked. But that's where he comes up with that comment later about, you know, they take us to war to kill and we come back and we don't stop. But um, it's it's just something, yeah, you... Uh, I have spoken to so many of them. You don't call them on their bullshit unless you really, really have to, mm. you know, but you can sort of ask for details that might throw them just to see their truth response against their lie response. But, um, yeah, really, you just got to go, okay, yeah, we'll probably not use this anyway. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you're the TV guy, but, yeah, I would. Oh, I no, would you overshoot for sure, defense. knowing that yeah, we yeah. won't use it. But they did use it. Let's have a look at another one. You know, I'm not a bullshitter. Anything I tell you is facts of life. If you don't believe it, that's your prerogative. You can do what you want. You know, everybody reads what they want, believes what they want. You know, and here's what they want. <laughs> now, sorry, you're the body language expert here. He's saying I'm not a bullshitter, then he's rubbing his nose. Isn't that the classic sign of a bullshitter? <laughs> It is because apparently males have a bit of erectile tissue un under their nose. I don't believe it, but apparently there is. And so um, when you have these moments of flights of fancy, you actually get a bit excited by it. And so that's why you sort of rub it. <laughs> is because that you know it's not thing? the truth. That's a thing. That's a thing. I'm not a doctor, so I can't Ooh, tell you you have erectile tissue oh. under your nose. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Robert, <laughs> for those who are listening, he was rubbing his nose, I promise. <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, but it is that. But he's, you know, he's maintaining that close eye contact as best he, he can. He's mumbling these words, I'm not a bullshitter, you know. And, yes, mm -hmm. we have the stroke involved here as well. But, um, yeah, it's just all these little other ticks that you see bring out that. So good spotting there, Robert. Thank you. Well, look, he, there's no doubt this guy loves the limelight, and he's actually asked about his celebrity status. I get letters from all over the world. I get a lot of college students, college professors, doctors, lawyers, psychiatrists, psychologists, yeah, all kinds of people from all walks of life. Do you see yourself as something of a celebrity here? <laughs> of course. In what yeah. way? Well, everybody knows what I'm here for. Do you enjoy the attention? Sometimes. Sometimes it gets to be a hassle. Gets to be a hassle. All I can think of is there was Amanda Howard writing to him as well. You were one <laughs> of those people, Amanda. I was, and the fact that he writes in uh, that response to one that I read last episode that, you know, as soon as my letters arrive, I'm the first one that he reads and, and, and responds to. More of the flights of fancy, more of the manipulation, more of the, oh, 
you're important in my life, you know, and a lot of them do that. I have so many, oh, I got really excited when your letter turned up, you know, I couldn't wait to read it. I, I responded straight away. And some of them do. Now, um, Mark Valera, who I spoke to for many years, would send me six letters a week. So, mm. I mean, he was, He, I knew everything he did every day because basically he sent me his diary every day, another letter. I have folders just of him. Wow. But, you know, but this is what they do. So, of course, they love it. Calling him a serial killer he doesn't like. And so he sent me a poem about being a serial killer, as in Cocoa Pops. Um, please sponsor us. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you've you got to put that in, Rob, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's just all of this. He, he wants that he wants that celebrity status, but he wants to be believed. So he doesn't want to be questioned on these things. He wants to be the biggest and the baddest and everything. And this is why we went into um, all these conversations that we had about the Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal Lecter. Um, you know, but it's just amazing that, you know, he's saying, oh, it's a bit of a hassle, but I have all these important people. He's not talking about the cleaner down the road who, who's writing to him, who is more likely writing to him than doctors, nurses, lawyers, um, psychiatrists and every, everything that he listed there. It's just it's just a bit more bravado of, you know, that he is uh, sought out by others in, in the world. But it's like this. I send out so many introductory letters and I get maybe one out of 10 strike rate, you know, but he was so super keen to write to me for all those years that to me, I don't think he had that huge amount that he sort of believed he, he did compared to others. I mean, there's some that really get thousands a day. So, you know, he was probably getting five a week. So Amanda, was Hannibal Lecter based on him? Well, I mean, uh, Thomas Harris had a really good uh, idea of sort of making these composite killers. So, I mean, all of these killers had sort of bits and pieces from several different serial killers. So um, with Hannibal Lecter, there's actually a scene in Silence of the Lambs where um, Dr Chilton is, is, is walking Clarice Starling to the uh, cell and um, she sort of says, you know, I, I can go alone. And so he actually talks to her that um, when uh, Hannibal Lecter chewed off a woman's face, um, that his blood pressure never rose and apparently mm. according to arthur shawcross he can do the same thing so he he can he can uh regulate his own heart rate so well you you know what we've got that scene let's take a look at the specific scene you're talking about i'm going to show you why we insist on such precautions on the afternoon of july 8 1981 he complained of chest pains and was taken to the dispensary his mouthpiece and restraints were removed for an ekg when the nurse leaned over him he did this to her the doctors managed to reset her jaw more or less save one of her eyes his pulse never got above 85 even when he ate her tongue so Arthur Shawcross's blood pressure never rose. Yeah, so um, he believes that he can regulate it. So when he's in these moments of heightened excitement, you know, during the killings and stuff, he actually had the heart rate of someone who was, you know, sitting down doing nothing. Right. So um, it's apparently something that he can do. I've never heard of it. It's not something I've, I've researched. But um, as far as I'm aware, uh, your heart has a fight or ref flight or fight response yep. that, um, you know, that you can't sort of control because it's innate and everything. But but according to him, that was one of the first things he said to me was, oh, you know, Hannibal Lecter's based on me. So, yeah, it's just, just another one of his his uh, stories he likes Which to he tell. would love, whether it's true or not, he would love to say that because oh, it's God. a famous movie, he feels like a celebrity. Look, in our next clip, he's asked about remorse and his answer 
is shocking. I don't have any remorse for some reason. But I find it strange that you can have, you clearly feel affection for your, your daughter and your I grandchildren. Know. That's strange. But you can't feel any empathy for all those people that the families of all the people that you killed. Yeah. It's not there. Like I said, I'm one side and the other side. I know something inside me is weird. It's just not there, is it? He seems confused by the idea. He is confused by it, you know, and this is because, you know, we we treat psychopaths as people who can't feel and, you know, that, that they have no true emotions, but they do have emotions. You know, uh, so many of them have, you know, families, wives, uh, children like he does, and it's part of who they are. What they love might be different to what someone else would consider love, but they have that familial response to these people and they know that they have great affection for them. These women weren't people to him it would be like throwing out your mcdonald's wrapper for last week sponsor us um you know it's just you know you've thrown it out you're not thinking about that 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 piece of garbage from last week and that's how he sees them so they're disposable literally disposable he was throwing them out the side of his truck so he has no remorse because he didn't feel anything to begin with so you know it it was a um an innate response to him to actually kill these women because he didn't hate them you know people think oh they that they must be in a a place of extreme anger and and revulsion or, or something drives them they're killing usually because they want to get their rocks off you know so that's about you know it's like throwing that that discarded condom away you know you you, you don't feel or care about that and that's yes. how he feels so of course he's not going to have any any remorse because he had no feelings towards him in the first place Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's have a look at what happens when they keep going down this path. There's always a bad man in me. You never can get rid of it. He's behind a door somewhere. I'm trying to keep him there. I don't want to hurt nobody else. Really? Really. So uh, this is what you describe as compartmentalising, isn't it? It is, and this is why he he taught me so well. It is about putting them behind a door, behind a box, inside a box, whatever. It's all it's all about um, being able to uh, remove yourself from that and uh, continue working, loving, caring, going to a job, whatever mm. you're doing outside of that area. You know, it's it's like when you know we're, we're highly stressed about something and, and we think, no, I can't let this make me stress for, for the week when it's happening next week. I'll just leave it for now and I'll stress about it the night before. This is what they do with killing. So he's done it. He's just going to pack that away, the person who did that away, and so he's going to continue with his life until that door opens again and that person comes out. It is very much about, it's not two lives, but it's about um, splitting it up into these various sections. I mean, we all do it in certain ways. You know, the the way you talk to someone at work would be different to how you talk to your kids or how you talk to your wife or Mm. how you talk to the girl in the grocery line we all have these different sections and often they are compartmentalized i come home from work i leave the work there most of the time and so that stays in that box until i go back and that's what they do with their killings too they put them in the box 
until they return to it. Okay, we, we've talked about the children he murdered and the fact he won't talk about them. Let's take a look at what happens when the interviewer tries one more time to talk about those murders in 1972. Uh, just a final question, Arthur. I mean, what, what, why won't you talk about the, the two young children? It's over. Is it, not because, is it because you're ashamed of it? It's disconnect. It's, this is over. Okay. Oh, thank you very much for your time. Bit dramatic. Oh, he's one for dramatics. We know that. <laughs> so you know, it's just, it's just that that was a very good way to in that interview because all of them in that room would have been cheering that that happened. Would have been nice if he spoke about it. But yeah, but to see him, you know, un, unconnect, disconnect from all of this and stand up and walk out. You know, he can't walk out. He's a prisoner, you know, he's not going anywhere. He's going literally three steps off camera and that is it. But it looks good on camera that he did that very dramatic, you know, storm out like as if he's Tom Cruise or something. But we do have this interesting clip and it's him describing meeting his first victim, Jack. I caused his death. I'm not going to cry about it. It's just something that happened at that time. I didn't go seeking him to destroy him. Interesting. It, it, it's obviously a devastating thing to hear, but he's left so much of what really happened out of that. Yeah, he has. And um, he has carefully chosen words there. As we see, there was a lot of pauses. There was a lot of mm. um, thoughts going into the words that he used, particularly when he apparently ripped the boy's heart out of his chest and tried to eat it. Wow. And he raped him and he tortured him. And this is sort of stuff that he doesn't want to talk about. Mm. But, you know, it's it's so amazing that in, in that later interview, he refused to talk about it. And yet here he is 10 years earlier talking about it. So, I mean, I don't know what's happened between there and there. Um, maybe he was uh, bashed in, in, in prison after the first interview that we just saw just then. And so he's decided he doesn't want to talk about it because they've all got HBO and they're probably watching or, or it anyway. Or he was blindsided so, and realised that he could put that condition on interviews going forward. Oh, absolutely. That That is, is probably exactly what he's done, that he says, don't ask. And so that's going to be the first question they're going to ask, especially when you want to do something chronologically. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's just amazing how uh, he changes between those two interviews. Well, at his trial for the murder of those young women... Shawcross decided to seek a not guilty verdict due to reason of insanity, but he was found guilty and sentenced to life with a minimum sentence of 250 years. He remained in prison until his death on November 10, 2008. Amanda, this guy, actually really interesting case study and interesting that he was one of the first serial killers, if not the first serial killer, you communicated with. Yeah, it's been quite interesting to actually revisit this case because it has been so long. Um, you, you know, it was 
just seeing him from different points of view because I knew that these docos were out there, but I hadn't actually watched them um, because, of course, I get first-hand sourced mm. straight from the killer himself. So uh, to see him manipulate others and tr- to try and create his own narrative and to sort of, you know, give them piercing stares to just sort of question if they're believing him or not, to then see his anger um, when he wasn't getting his own way to the dramatic walkout at, at the end. It's just interesting to put all those together with the person that I knew and had spoken to for many years before he, he passed away. So, yeah, it's been interesting and I have many more killers I could do this way and I think I was sort of putting them off. I don't know why, but I think now... No, let's of, get um, into them. Broken surface. <laughs> <laughs> I've got plenty. You saw me digging through files before trying to find some I bits did. and pieces. We have plenty of killers that we can do these first-hand things on, but there is so many others out there and today I picked up three new cases that have added to season 293. So, I mean, there's plenty <laughs> more Brilliant. All right. Don't forget you can watch the video podcast of this episode by going to mwm.uscreen.io. That's mwm.u, as in the letter U, screen, S-C-R-E-E-N.io. Amanda Howard, the serial killer whisperer, criminologist, and so much more. Thank you for your time and thank you for another great insight into another case. Thank you. We'll see you next week on Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.